On Christmas morning in the year 2000 and something, I unwrapped a thin DVD-shaped gift from my mom. I was in elementary school and twitched with excitement at the thought of receiving nearly anything. Nearly. While gift wrap floated to the ground, I read the title of my mystery movie gift. Will Vinton's Claymation Christmas, semicolon, plus Halloween and Easter celebrations. To be honest, I wasn't sure what I was looking at. I had never heard of this movie. It looked like it had been sitting in a Walmart bargain bin for 10 years before appearing in my hands. It appeared to be a compilation of several vaguely holiday-themed short claymation films. For those unfamiliar, claymation, also known as stop motion, is a style of animation where animators take a picture of a figure, move the picture slightly, and then take another picture. Playing the images together quickly creates the illusion of movement. When I was a kid, I made a few of my own claymation movies. They were short and bad, but I had a lot of fun making them. Though it genuinely horrifies some people, I always liked it a lot. It always amazed me uh, watching static objects come to life. Some famous examples of claymation films are Wallace and Gromit, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and all of the other Christmas classics from the 60s through 70s. In fact, I recognize all of those films and like them very much, but I didn't recognize this one. I'm sure my mother analyzed my expression as I analyzed the cover of her gift. I'm sure her heart sank as she saw a befuddlement creep across my face instead of joy. And to make it worse, later on, I approached her and point blank said something like, thanks, but this movie just looks really weird. I don't know any of the characters on the cover. I mean, why did you get it? What is this? What is this? Is what the people of Israel said to each other when they first encountered manna, the promised bread from heaven. To set the stage, the Israelites were facing the latest in a string of near-death experiences. A month and a half ago, they had been chased by Pharaoh's armies while fleeing Egypt through a canyon of water. After escaping, they went without drinkable water for three days in the hot desert. Now they were facing starvation. They had been grumbling in appropriate frustration that Moses and Aaron had led them from abundant food in Egypt to starvation in the desert. Maybe their captivity wasn't so bad in hindsight, they mourned. The Israelites were hungry, delirious, and God had heard their cries and sent them a very specific message through Moses and Aaron. At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. It should have been clear. The Israelites were saved, and they knew exactly how it would happen. Specific food was coming at specific times. Evening equals meat, morning equals bread. Meat and bread together equals a sign of God's devotion to his people. And yet, on the morning of their salvation, everyone is unsure of what exactly they are looking at on the ground. Manna, the name the Israelites eventually gave their life-giving bread from heaven, is described in the Bible as thin flakes, like frost on the ground. But what does that even really look like? Are we talking frosted flakes? Are we talking little crackers? The manna eventually melted if the people tried to store it, so was it literally ice crystals in the desert? What? It hardly makes any sense even just trying to visualize it. What was it? What exactly was mana? Well, I did some light research to soothe my nagging mind, and it turns out the answer may have been found in the year 1968, which coincidentally was somewhat around the release of the classic Rudolph claymation film. Uh, a professor of botany stumbled upon uh, curious white pellets attached to shrubs in the Sinai Desert, which matched the biblical descriptors of mana, white like coriander seed and sweet like wafers made of honey. And it grew around the same historical area the Israelites wandered. Curious similarities. So what were those pellets? The excrement of bugs. <laughs> bugs that feast on the sweet sap of the desert vegetation and leave digestive byproduct behind that is white, hard, and full of sugar. Now, we can't know for certain if this is what mana actually was, but let's pretend it is for now. Good bread to me is perhaps a large, round, warm loaf with a crusty exterior and a soft, fluffy interior. It's not 
white Tic Tacs stuck to sandy shrubs near my toes. Plus, if we are assuming that this is what mana was, it's so small. How could any one person live off of Tic Tacs, let alone a whole nation? How many Tic Tacs does one need to gather to subsist on them daily for 40 years? Well, we actually know exactly how many Tic Tacs that took, in fact. Exodus 16 paints a crystal clear picture. It says that every day for each person at camp, the Israelites gathered one omer's worth of mana. But that's not very clear, actually. What exactly is an omer? Well, the Bible realizes you probably don't understand what an omer is either. So at the end of the chapter, we are graciously enlightened. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Uh, yes, much better. <laughs> Except that if you're anything like me, this still makes no sense. So I went to Wikipedia, which offered me this explanation. An ephah is defined as 72 logs. Okay, but if it's still not clear, Wikipedia defined a singular long is equal to a Sumerian mina. Okay, but if it's still not clear, Wikipedia says that a Sumerian mina is, is simply 1 16th of a maris. Okay, so to bring this full circle, an omer is simply 12 one hundredths of a maris. The Wikipedia page actually went further into confusing historic conversions such as 43.2 chicken eggs for an omer. But for time's sake, an omer could really be anywhere between 2.2 to 4.4 pounds, which is still imprecise at best. So to sum up my tangent in short, we still don't know very clearly what an omer is. And we still don't know with any certainty what mana actually looked like. So we still don't quite understand any of it. Back on Christmas Day in the year 2000 and something, right after I told my mother I thought her movie gift was weird and I didn't understand it at all, I'm sure my mother didn't quite understand me at all. She was changing my little sister's diapers when I told her my thoughts later in the day. With appropriate frustration, she grumbled, I just knew that you liked claymation. I saw that wall at the store and I, I thought you might like it. She returned to changing diapers. It was then my mistake dawned on me. My stomach got on an elevator in my torso and got off around the magma in the Earth's core. What a fool I was. The gift I had been looking at was not what I thought it was initially. It wasn't a decaying bargain bin movie selection she had picked on a whim. It was a sign. It was a sign of a mother who loved me so much that she actually paid attention to my interest, and she wanted to show me her support. It was a sign of her devotion, a sign that I genuinely mattered to her, deeply. I immediately retreated to our computer room to pop in the DVD. I vowed to try to uh, appreciate my mother's love fully, and to be honest, I still didn't really understand it. The claymation impressed me, but also half of the film was like the California Raisin singing different Christmas songs, and it just didn't make sense. It was a bit befuddling. After finishing all 45 minutes of the movie, I ran back to my mom and told her, I was wrong. This movie was actually really good. Thank you for buying it for me. I really appreciate it. And I don't remember her response, but it was something to the effect of, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. But ultimately, I knew the damage had been done. I left the room feeling bad, knowing I couldn't undo my initial reaction, but I could try better next time. The next time she gave me a gift, I would be so thankful, no matter what it was. Though I know for a fact I still failed to do this because I have later equally embarrassing memories of complaining about silly things, like getting Transformer toys when I wanted Pokemon ones. And truthfully, I know I still fail to perceive and understand the depth and complexity of my mother's presence in my life. Her continual love and support now and all throughout my childhood, act as an undergirding to all that I am today. And I also still fail to understand the gifts that God gives me in my day-to-day -day life, like the sudden cancellation of a concert that I had been looking forward to for months, which in hindsight gave me a much-needed night of rest, or when a coworker I don't know very well sits next to me at lunch, which then reminds me of how nice it is to get to know new people. 
uh, or when the cold air rolls in signaling the death of summer, which then allows me to enjoy a home-cooked meal with my fiance on a crisp fall day. I'm not saying that all bad things in life are actually good with enough of a spin. I'm not saying that every cloud has a silver lining. I'm not even saying that you should look at the glass half full. To make this crystal clear, I'm just saying that after Moses plainly revealed to the Israelites that the white Tic Tacs they were looking at were actually bread from heaven, God's gift of salvation, they all started waking up at the crack of dawn and gathering 43.2 chicken eggs worth of insect excrement per person off desert floor shrubs every day to survive for the next 40 years. I'm just saying that when a boy in the year 2000 and something realizes a 45-minute bargain bin claymation compilation DVD somehow equates to a profound and personally moving sign of his mother's genuine devotion, that perhaps means he has a consistent source of enough love in his life to help him survive the next 40 years. I'm just saying that an omer of belief a day and the power of our almighty, sometimes befuddling God will help you endure 40 years worth of 45-minute claymation movies while eating sweet white insect pellets like popcorn. And now everything is crystal clear. You're saying to yourself, ah, yes, I see. Another facet of God is now visible to me and I can move on with my day. But if that's not true, if the message isn't clear at all, if you can't make out any sort of meaning from our time together, if I've completely muddled any semblance of a message by trying to tie everything together, that's okay. Because somehow God provides for you and I through means we don't quite understand. I woke up after the election in November 2016, shocked to hear who won the presidency. My first thought was that this is how the people exiled in, to Babylon must have felt. That is, why is God punishing us? What have we done? Where do we go from here? Are we the in crowd or on the outs? Yeah, it's a kind of a stretch. But among my personas that I admit to is seminary nerd. The exile is a continuing theme in the Old Testament and influenced the New Testament as well. Obviously, I'm not going to delve into all the themes in this five-minute message. Time me. But this passage is a good summary of how to address an individual or a group who are feeling unsettled, adrift, threatened by changes in their political status, as well as where they live and how they're to live according to God's wishes. Not to mention that there's a schism in that community, those who were exiled and those who stayed behind, who are the in crowd, who are the outs, with society and with God. This feels familiar, does it not? Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem writing to the exiles in Babylon. He's writing as a prophet, a prophet of the word of God. First, Jeremiah says to the exiles, settle down, plant gardens, get married, have children, get spouses for your children. And in case it's not clear, he says more bluntly, increase, do not decrease. As the Holocaust has become more in our consciousness lately, perhaps because of Ken Burns' documentary, this part of the scripture reminded me of the Jewish diaspora before and after that historic 20th century disaster. Jews have suffered and been dispersed for millennia, and always they have responded to this passage from, from Jeremiah and others like it. Settle down, 
pay attention to your family. Increase, don't decrease. And they've been given the balm of the conclusion of this passage. For I know I have the plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, will bring you back to the place which I carried, from which I carried you into exile. Now that comforting passage is often cited in sermons and hymns and pastoral visits to many people who are suffering. You are in God's hands. God will listen to you. If with all your heart you truly seek me, you shall ever surely find me, thus saith our God. But between the advice to blossom where you're planted and the assurance that God has your best welfare at heart is a rather unsettling admonition. And it is this admonition that I think speaks most pointedly to our present situation. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now, we don't have to research the specifics of that false prophecy that the exiles were hearing. If we accept the comforting passage of seeking and finding God as being a universal passage, then we should listen as well to the admonition about false prophecies as being pretty much general too. In all the sermons I've heard based on the comforting passage or even the previous encouraging passage about marrying and settling down, I don't think I've ever heard the caution about false prophecy linked to either one. But I don't think we should hear the encouragement without also listening to the warning. So, what would be the false prophecy that the Jeremiah passage refers to today? I would say anything that goes smack against Jesus' depart departing commandment to love one another as he loves us. To all those folks we call right-wing Christians or Christian nationalists, that, that is, those who condemn people, for their gender orientation or their religious beliefs or for whatever ethnic group or racial group they belong to, for all those signs hosted against, hoisted against LGBTQ folks calling them on them to repent, I would hoist a sign with this scripture. Do not let them deceive you. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Praise God. Amen. At my funeral, and everyone here is officially invited, and that includes all you geek admirers on Zoom.
there will be a no crying policy strictly enforced. I would like it to be a party atmosphere. Beer, cigars, maybe an Iron Maiden tribute band, cake optional, depending on where it's being held and who is attending. If anyone feels like making a speech, go for it. If anyone is inclined to bring up a favorite story or memory or even share some of my art, so be it. And for the record, I'm not planning on making any guest appearances. <laughs> I am hoping that when I go, I go. I would have completed all that I was supposed to complete, that there's nothing left on the old drawing table per se. I would have accomplished everything that I was to accomplish. And if you know me, that's not my near future. My favorite question to be asked is, what are you working on now? Whether it be a new Trollord's yarn or a print that I've been thinking or doing, or a commission or an idea that's been creeping around this old noggin of mine, there is always something that still needs yet time yet to do. And like I said, when all my tasks are finished, I can say adios to this world and be given a whole new set of crayons to color with, just beyond those pearly gates. Well, that's the plan anyway. As I'm reading the scripture of Ezekiel 37, I get the feeling that just wasn't the case. When the Spirit of God breathed life into those bones, those bones, and got to bring new muscle and sinew to those moldy old corpses, I imagine it being a lot like a Clive Barker or a Stephen King story where the dead walked the earth again. George Romero would have been proud. Dare I say the Z word in church? Those zombies might, might have thought that they were done, but Ezekiel and the Lord had other plans. Yep, no rest for them. Now, I'm not going to stand here and interp interpret the biblical ramifications of this story. Ezekiel was a priest, and being dead, around dead bodies or human remains was an ultimate no-no. Israel could be a metaphor for the mending and fixing up of our countries, and these bones could re represent what once was in the past, but is now dried up dust in the wind. But can these bones really come back to life? Last year, I was clumsy enough to find the only patch of ice in front of my house and break two bones in my ankles. Complications continued, and I had to have a knee replacement as therapy didn't go according to plan. And then there were the blood clots. If there was a time machine, I don't plan on visiting 2021 ever again. And yet, that brought something to my attention. First of all, do you know what they replaced my knee with? Yep, you got it, a cadaver. Spare parts from somebody else. I didn't get any cyborg treatment. There's nothing bionic going on down there. Good old American grade A fresh dead meat. Think of it. Somebody else had to die before I could walk again. <laughs> I never had the opportunity to thank my donor or his family. I like to think or call him Myron. Now, I don't know anything about Myron. Was he a happy person? Was he artistic? What kind of music did he tap his foot to back when it was his still foot still to be tapping? Was he God-fearing? Maybe he was an atheist. I know he thought about the future. 
and I'm a benefactor of his generosity. Was he athletic? Would he feel ashamed that I'm not running any marathons in the near future? Did he ever get depressed or negative? Did he finish all that he was able to accomplish in his lifetime? I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that sometimes you don't get to say of what goes on after you go on. So maybe you should get out that bucket list and start checking off a couple items while you can. If you don't be, there's endless thoughts of things that still need to be completed. This book still needs to be done. I still have to get off to the printer. This art still needs to be accomplished. I have a new roof I have to pay off. And I have to fall in love again. I got cats I got to feed. I'll have new pets to torture in the future. Climb the exorcist steps. Oh, wait, I just did that. <laughs> Strangers and new people to share my journey with. The bucket list goes on and on. I still have a lot to do, like finishing up this sermon. Well, that's the plan anyway. God bless you. As I get older and older, I do not enjoy going to weddings. There, I said it out loud for all to hear. I am sure I will now get uninvited or even given a second thought about my next invitation that goes out. To clarify, it is not the actual wedding celebration of love or the spiritual joining of people that I do not like. To be fair, an open bar can also help in the celebration process and any cake can influence commitment for love. Taking part in celebrating love, I do take seriously. I just dread the ceremony. I have been to so many weddings that use or abuse 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay, after reading that out loud, it's not all that bad. But it's a tall order with no user's guide or practical aspects to assist us in this poetic advice. This is used in countless weddings, whether by some choice from a menu of wedding-appropriate verses or an easy way to capture ourselves in a vow, in the moment. Reminding us to be on our best behavior, moving forward together in the eyes of God. And before I truly let my expansive, cynical nature show, truly I am the show-me-how-that-really-works or prove-to-me-it-works variety of people, I never buy anything that says as seen on TV endorsement. I really believe that the best love is patient, kind, and envious, etc. But imagine for a moment, we took a look at the few things from the rest of Corinthians that help us to bring perspective or guide our connection with patience, kindness, and truth. Well, before that, in actuality, the whole of 1 Corinthians prior to 13 are, real, really, are really directions of living that covers eating, 
Corinthians 8, food offered to idols. Stop eating food that might make your fellow man sin. At this point, wouldn't that just be considered McDonald's? I mean, the golden arches? Clothing. Corinthians 11, head coverings. Use your best judgment, women and men. Use common sense when it comes to your appearance. And living. Corinthians 12, concerning spiritual gifts and the body. We have all lots of gifts from God and body parts too that do amazing things. We should just acknowledge their unique purpose and participate with the Holy Spirit. These are the directions that people are not really reading. Like when you get a gift and you plug it in or start using it before reading any of the directions provided, you go right to the love part. Often, we go back to read more details of the directions to better understand the gift we're given, to gain clarity and ways to bring us to using the perfect gift. Obviously, I'm not saying that people shouldn't eat sacrificed, uh, eat food sacrificed to idols or have to wear head coverings, but there's something to the idea that before we get to those precious words of love is patient, love is kind, there are practical examples we experience about how to live with each other. What are the day-to-day -day things people are doing that bring them closer in the practice of shared life? What experiences are we having that move from poetic to real examples of living with each other? The problem is that people read these flowery verses about love and they ignore everything else that's around them. The things that ground and complicate and make the poetry possible. But I challenge us to look at some of the directions and apply them to the everyday. Recently, I took a road trip with my 87-year-old dad. And in preparing for the sermon with or without irony, I thought about really looking beyond the love is kind verse a lot over the road trip. While the father-son relationship on the best days can be complicated, the love is patient, not irritable, and does not insist on its own way on a Florida road trip is in your face, temperature fixed, holiday in hotel room challenging. <laughs> Helping my early stage Parkinson's father navigate from car to meal to activity is remembering that love does bear all things and hopes all things. Digging deep to remind yourself, without love, we are nothing. This is where the poetry comes to life that rises and challenges us to listen past the words and into the spirit of God. In 1998, my partner Steve died of AIDS when he was 34 years old. I was the person in charge of hospitals, care, and finally helping him through the end. His cam family came for the final days, but it was intense and not necessarily understanding, a kind of respectful restraint. His ask was half his ashes in Lake Michigan and half in the Washakie Basin in Wyoming, where he did his research. Within the week of his death, the first half of the ash displacement was done. 
plans to see them the next summer in Wyoming for the second half of ass distribution were made. We arrive in Salt Lake City the next summer. We had all time to process and grieve in our own way, but we were still at a loss for words, for comfort, or, or how to even do this part. Maps were involved, renting a car. The day was set and off we went to the Washakie Basin. No roads to speak of, no plan to really sp speak of, only a little bit of patience left, trying not to be rude and lots of insisting on our own way. And we drive and we get lost. No map would help and the afternoon was gaining on us. Four people, one reason to be there, thrown into circumstances they had certainly never thought about and how to be prepared at the intersection of a profound love for Steve. Tensions mount, it's getting dark. I shout, we have to find somewhere fast. Stop the car, get out, let's go over there. There may have been swearing. I am sure there was swearing. <laughs> After a round robin of responsibility, Steve's mom is the final choice for the ashes thrown in this feat of skill. And in an instant it is done and we go. We find our way, we do not speak, through the ride and through dinner, and the next morning quiet goodbyes. Sure, love is patient, kind, and etc but it is also awkward and painful and mundane. Maybe it doesn't boast or keep track of wrongs, but it also sometimes takes long, silent drives that it would rather not be on. This was not poetic nor idyllic moment we often so take from Corinthians 13. But in my cynical nature or my confusion or questioning, there is hope. At the end of Corinthians 13 reminds us it is not always black and white. There is gray, a work in progress. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. That even love, we are open to adjustments and wonder. It is okay to be unsure we still have things to learn and room to grow. Even as, as I have been fully known, God knows my heart. He knows me, my pain, my fear, my love. Even if I've already thrown out all the directions about love already. But the instructions of love, if you will, at its most bold, if I gave away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. How about we start with that? How is that not the best reminder? Maybe I just need to get over the ceremony and the verses used and even the irritating chicken dance at weddings and stop being so cynical and just focus on, well, love is patient. I am nothing without love and the greatest 
is love.